Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Center of Government Contracting webinar this morning. We're a center at George Mason University, part of the School of Business. We're going to be talking with Dr. Jim Hasick, who is another senior fellow here at the Center of Government Contracting. He wrote a fascinating book about the MRAP program. And the, the title of the book is Securing the MRAP, Lessons in Marketing and Military Procurement, and he's showing a copy of it there. Just for background, I should say that the book actually, yeah, now it looks like this, but at a certain point, it looked just like a doctoral dissertation, which is how this started. It was actually my PhD dissertation in public policy at the University of Texas. Yeah, hold on. This was fun. I went to UT Austin. I'm a Longhorn. Did my PhD there. And the Aggies decided to publish my book. They're not playing football again for a few years, so I was actually really delighted. They, they wanted to do the book. And as part of it, it's, it's an odd placement in a sense, because they have it as part of what the publisher calls its Williams Ford military history series. So if it's history, it's pretty recent, right? Because I think the events in the book end maybe around 2015 or 2016. I talk a bit about, say, the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle Program, JLTV, which you could think of as the, the sort of a son of MRF, maybe. We'll talk to the mother of MRF later. I'm delighted to have, we're going to have Susan Alderson talk. She's the statistician who caught this all kicked off, but they put it in military history. And yet it was a dissertation for me in public policy. But most of what I think I talked about in the book and the whole point of the book is really about marketing to the armed forces, to the military, in particular in times of crisis in wartime with this particular case. I backed into this dissertation in a terrible way from the vantage point of being a good academic. I found a case study and then I tried to go show what it meant. If there are any academics listening to this cringing right now, oh man, they let you get away with that. They graduated you? Yeah, okay. And yet there, there's, a, there's an alternative sort of tradition in research that sometimes important things happen and we're not entirely sure why they're important, but we know they're important, so we should go figure out why they're important. And it's more of an historian's approach. The fact that I had a few historians in the doctoral committee, my dissertation committee, allowed me to get away with that. Also, I just thought it was, this is a super important thing that somebody ought to study so that we can capture some lessons from it. One of the wars in which this was engaged went, it was, it was winning ugly. And the other one, let's not talk about it right now. Unfortunately, the book comes out in September of 2020, just as, or 2021, just as we're deciding, enough with that. So as for sales, I'm not sure that that put a lot of wind in the sales, so to speak. Bad mixed metaphor for a former sailor. You asked about that at one point. How does a guy who was in the Navy start writing about armament vehicles, right? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and before that, I was a business consultant, largely working for defense contractors. And it just so happened that a number of the folks I was working with, United Defense LP, later BAA Systems, back in the early 2000s, were either in or thinking about getting in the military trucks business. And I kept looking at different kinds of military trucks. And then I came across this thing, a vehicle called the RG31. This is anodyne, meaningless brand name. They're the first problem, right? Damon's guys at Force Protection did a much better job with their branding. And I thought, this is really fascinating. Why is this? This is a little bomb-proofed truck for the bomb squads, the EODs, as we say, the explosive ordnance disposal teams. Wow, what a great thing. I started doing a little bit of research. I realized 
by the summer of 2006 that if up through a certain point in 2006, no one had been killed in one of these things in Iraq, despite IEDs going off right and left. Huh, why aren't there more people in these? That's a good question. So I got myself a meeting with the folks at CAPE, Cost Analysis and Program Evaluation at the Pentagon, or PA&E, Program Analysis and Evaluation, same shop. And they thanked me for my time, and they were very interested and all that. I went off thinking, eh, maybe something will happen. It turns out that at the same time, Susan was doing much more important work with a much better data set. And she was making much more progress. And we'll talk about that later. But yeah. um, that's, how I got, that's how I got into it. I was just working on trucks. And I thought, this is, what are these? Armored trucks, bomb-proof trucks. You know, one of the things as I read the book, because I have an Air Force background, I deployed, I, I rode once in an MRAP in a non-combat area, but I associated MRAPs with the Army. But the Marine Corps was really the early adopter. And they're the ones that actually brought it in. So can you talk about that? So yes, it's now strictly speaking, the first folks in the United States to buy something that looked like an MRAP was the US Army, actually. So they bought some before the war in Afghanistan in 2000. They bought 10 of them from a company. We're going to meet one of the reps from the former reps from the company, Damon here in a little bit. And that's predated his time. But the Army bought a few. And then the Army bought some more later, but for EOD teams. The Marine Corps bought some more later for EOD teams. But the first folks to move in a big way, first in 2005, in, in, in frankly, a halting fashion, and then in 2006, in a way that you know, Susan was, was part and parcel of this process, one of our panelists was part and parcel of this process, the, they moved in a very big way in 2006 and made it happen. They wound up buying over a thousand of them. Okay, so how does that happen? One of Damon's predecessors at Force Protection Industries, okay, one of the two companies that are making MRAPs anywhere in the world, basically. There are a few others doing stuff like it. There's a firm in Australia doing a couple hundred. But access to the U.S. market, there are two companies. He's one of them. One of his predecessors in the job told me, who is a former Army officer. Now, the reason has to do with what academics describe as pathways of military innovation. There, we think maybe there are about four big ways in which military forces change, okay, particularly under pressure. One of those is the pressure of inter-service rivalry, okay? Like, the Marine Corps is doing something, oh damn, I don't want to be left out. So I better do it just so I'm not embarrassed, okay? There's also a pressure of intra-service rivalry. The, the tankers are doing something, so over in the infantry, I want to get my own armored vehicle or something like that, that can at least keep up with them, blah, blah. Sometimes intra-service rivalry prevents military services from doing things because of bureaucratic politics, a sort of cultural identification with a particular mission, you can think back to in 2000, the kerfuffle about trying to bring the striker armored vehicle into the U.S. Army, okay? Yeah, the, the tracked vehicle guys were really unhappy about this. So here's another real vehicle coming in. And as, as one of Damon's predecessors put it to me, uh, this thing did not look like a Bradley, the main conveyance of the Army at the time. Very hard to convince the infantry that this was a vehicle for them. They would say, oh, that's a bomb squad vehicle, right? No, no, it's a vehicle for you. But it looks like a bomb squad vehicle. Okay. The Marines, there's this great line from uh, the movie version of A Few Good Men, in which, you know, Devin Moore's character tells the other, the other David officers, so the Marines down at, Quanta, or, sorry, down at Gitmo are pretty fanatical. Fanatical about what? About being Marines. Okay, all Marines are just fanatical about being Marines. So once they learn that, hey, we're in the middle of the desert, we can't actually assault the beach, we have to do something else awesome, just be a Marine. They don't have quite the same inter-service inter branch hangups as the Army has. So he thought, I'm going to sell it first to the Marine Corps, but the Army's going to be the bigger prize. So eventually, 
I mean, there's this, I, someone told me a story about when Robert Gates, the defense secretary, decides finally to put the gas on this thing, and we just had to buy thousands of them. He looks at, he's in the tank, and he asks the army chief at the time, hey, the commandant of the Marine Corps here, he wants to buy 3,500. How many do you need? And the chief, apparently, it took him like three seconds to blurt out 10,000. That's a number we can get behind, and I'm about three times the size of the Marine Corps, so I should have three times as many vehicles. Okay, that's about how the sales process went. There was a lot of hard work. They will talk about that. But that's, that is why he went after the Marine Corps first. Because service politics play, your politics play a major role, I think, is most people who are involved with business development in the defense industry, in the defense industry to defense forces will tell you. Major role is what gets bought and what doesn't get bought. Yeah, that's awesome. Your book is amazing amount of historical detail that I think will be a great reference years to come. But I was also, and for those folks who have actually read the book, I was also blown away at how many references there were. And I think there was like 200 pages of... of There's only 200 pages of text or 205. And notes, okay, it goes, no, that's not true. There's actually only, there's, there's only 70 pages of notes. Yeah, no, there, there are 70 pages of endnotes in here, and then the bibliography is long too. I do actually hope that it gets, one of the guys I was talking to on the faculty at Texas when I was thinking about doing this, who was a little less excited about the topic, he didn't wind up actually on my committee. I remember having a conversation in which I said, I hope that eventually a book like this or this book gets read by enough people in the Pentagon or in other defense force headquarters around the world that were, you would want people to do the work. If the Russians ignore it, it's not going to bother me. But the Brits, yes, Russians, French, whomever. I, I hope folks in enough defense force, uh, defense ministries read it because I want them to keep in the back of their mind that we're not going to be surprised by an IED again, okay? But hopefully not. We get surprised by landmines in Vietnam and then we get surprised by landmines again in Iraq. How does that happen? But hopefully that doesn't happen. But if there's another, if, if it does, okay, maybe here's a manual, okay? If it doesn't, at least you've got a mental guide for the kinds of things that you're gonna to need to do to come up with what I like to call the next MRAP. I don't know what that is, to deal with the next IED. Because there's a sort of a current, you know, the military innovation literature that we don't, we, it's Robert Gates' line about, you know, we have a perfect record preparing for the next war. We always completely fail to do so. Well, everybody does, okay? The real thing is not being able to forecast in advance. It's not so much being able to forecast in advance what the surprise is going to be, but to build an organization that is robust in the face of surprise, that's, that, that can deal with it in a resilient fashion, and that can adapt quickly. So there's a whole bunch of work now being done, thinking around, you know, think tanks are doing it, some academics are doing it, around adaptation under fire. That's actually a book now out by two academics at American University and some IQ. So, and I think you touched on that the, there's a lot of history in the book. There's a lot of storytelling of what happened and a lot of names that I think everybody, even in the public would recognize. Mattis is in there quite a bit and other folks who rose to great heights of leadership in um, the national security space. But can you go through really what the lessons are? That What is the guidebook that people should be taking away? What are the lessons yeah. that we're going to hear about when we talk to the panel members in just a few minutes? Well, first of all, I'm going to let them disagree with me. Absolutely. Okay, because it, so the, the beauty about being an academic is that you can pull up and look at something a little dispassionately. I, I wasn't highly involved with this after about 2008, except helping defense contractors clean up their operations, sell their vehicles, that sort of thing. 
I've never been to Iraq. I've never been to Afghanistan. I didn't a little bit not, I don't have that emotional attachment. On the other hand, sorry? You're a Navy guy, right? <laughs> yeah. So I would like to say, I know that a lot of Navy people went to Iraq and Afghanistan, but if I had found myself, I told someone once, 500 miles up a river, making PowerPoint slides, eating pizza, surrounded by barbed wire, I would think something has gone very wrong. I don't see any salt water around here. Okay. The, the point though is I'm a little detached from it, but the people who actually, they're going to have very different experiences. And, so, and those are pretty valid. You have to consider everybody's involvement. And so this book was a big process trace. Okay. That's the main, that points to the main lessons that I want people to take away. Okay. There are, and I put those in two categories, if I might. The first is that everything about marketing to the military is rather different about say marketing salty snacks or automobiles or whatever it is to consumers, right? Except you should consider that the very basics of how you should think through marketing. If you ever took an introductory marketing course, they're going to talk to you, tell you about three C's and four P's and that sort of thing. Okay. These are pretty good mnemonics. We don't use them for doing research, but they're really good for teaching at the introductory level. Okay. You've got a product. You're going to sell that product at a price. You got to find a way to communicate to people who don't know who the heck you are, promote your product. And then you got to figure out, here's the thing that both the channel through which to sell it. So that's usually prescribed in military procurement, but not completely. You need the channel through which to sell it. And you also need to figure out not just how to promote it, but how to describe it, how to conceive of it, which is to say, if I cook up a breakfast cereal that tastes great and is good for you, does it go in the section for the breakfast cereals that taste great or the breakfast cereals that are good for you? How do you want the store to slot that? There's something very similar here. And that's what I was talking about. This thing doesn't look like a Bradley. A very hard, it was very difficult to, as I was saying, to place this thing properly, place those things properly with the armed forces and the way they thought about which office do I go talk to? Do I go to talk to the engineers? Do I talk to the infantry? They kept sending back to the engineers. The engineers said, we got enough of them. What was beautiful about this particular system was that in a Clay Christensen sort of disruptive kind of way, it did one thing really well, which was resist landmines. But it Everything else, other than resisting machine gun fire with an afterthought, like it wasn't designed to withstand a tank round. It wasn't designed to withstand direct hit from an artillery shell. Conveniently, the insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan didn't have any of it, so it didn't need to, okay? The product was highly differentiated. That's the first thing you got to remember. You got to differentiate your product in a way that will, will be, as, as Steve Jobs at, at Apple used to say, just, so the thing is just insanely good, okay? I cannot avoid buying it, at least for the particular mission I've got in mind. However, you, this is the thing about selling to a complicated bureaucracy. You don't want to, as the line goes in the Pentagon, break too many rice bowls. Every time somebody's mission changes, somebody gets a rice bowl and somebody else's gets broken. You don't want to offend too many people. So you actually need to, and there's a good book about this from 2014. I didn't write it. I got the, at the Air Force Academy, actually. But a former, former retired naval officer at the Air Force Academy wrote this book about moderating the message in military innovation. Sometimes you need to tell folks that it's just designed for counterinsurgency. Don't worry, we're not going to try to foist these things on you for driving through the folded gap or something like that. So moderating the message can be very important as a matter of promotion. On the other hand, if you've got a difficult sell, and this is known in the literature, this is known in the military innovation literature, if you're trying to promote the product as a defense contractor, it's very important to reach out to people that are, you think of as product champions within the armed forces, those iron majors and lieutenant colonels who can pick up the ball and go somewhere in a staff work kind of way. Somebody needs to be, as they say in Silicon Valley, 
evangelizing this thing. Right? Now, here's the fourth thing that I think it's a matter of placement, where you put the product, what kind of breakfast cereal is it? There is some hard institutional work. Here's the word, legitimizing the product. It has to become something that a bureaucratic buyer can look at and say, yes, nobody is going to give me too much grief for trying to buy that. And Susan's got a, probably a great story about that when, in, in the next hour when we go to that. Because it was, there was a point where it was very easy to tell people that, no, that thing, it had this sort of sketchy historical background from the apartheid wars in South Africa. That's where these things were basically not quite perfected, but, you know, where they were have, you know, reliably engineered. The thing stands like 20 feet off the ground. It's, you're always going to see the darn thing coming. Yeah, I know. It doesn't matter. It's not for that. It's for something else. Yeah. You have to create a product category. We have to come up with a name like MRAP, which came out of a master's thesis at the Marine Corps Staff College at Monaco, but it worked. It was something that people could latch onto and say, oh, I know what that is. That's an MRAP. And then it became easier to sell. So we have a question from William who asked, what are the lessons for government? Because I, I know we have a lot of internal government people on the line. So most of those lessons were for industry. And that's the push of your book was marketing to the military, but what can government take away from this? The first thing I want to mention is that in, in the chat, the Honorable John Young, former chief fire for the Pentagon, that's not the official title, but let's just put it that way, had a procurement for the largest procurement organization in the world, to say, yeah, that story with the army chief and the tank, no, it didn't happen that way. Okay, it probably didn't literally happen that way. Thanks. I'm sorry, repeat the question if you would. I apologize. No, no problem. And we're really um, glad to have uh, participating because he is also another uh, person that, that... Yeah, yeah say at least he's in the book. And also yeah. answers some oh. questions for me when I was doing my research, which I really appreciate. He moved mountains to make the MRAP uh, program happen. Yeah. The question was from William, and it was, what are the lessons for government? Um, because we're talking a lot about lessons. Oh, for yeah, 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 okay. So there's this great line that I heard from a highly respected Canadian military procurement official, Alan Williams. So that job with the Undersecretary of Defense for what was acquisition technology logistics, it's now acquisition sustainment here in the US, that's a political position. But in, in Canada, it's actually generally a career civil servant who has that job. So Alan had, and I've talked to him many times, he had this job back in the early days of this when the Canadian army was uh, equipping up with a smaller number of RG-31s. But before the U.S. Army did, interesting, we were discussing marketing once, and he said, I always tried to inculcate in my people up on Rideau Drive in Ottawa a, a resistance to the marketing efforts mm -hmm. of defense contractors. And I, I have suggested to him something, but it's in the book, that I say that this is not actually a good idea, that the, the business of, you know, marketing is, somebody was reminding that Peter Drucker, management theorist and kind of guru, uh, some decades ago, said marketing is one of basically only two things that you really should care about in a business. Okay. The other one's innovation. And then you better be marketing those innovations. What is marketing? Think about Phil Kotler's description. It's anything that is designed as an activity to get a product into or a service into the hands of a customer who wants that. But part of the problem is that often the customer has no idea of what the customer wants. You don't know what you want. I know what you want, particularly if I'm Steve Jobs, a company that Apple doesn't really do any, I, I'm, I'm going to feel like, I feel like the late, great John McCain holding up my iPhone, saying that I didn't know that I needed one of these. I was a, I was a Nokia guy. I didn't, with a little keyboard. I didn't know I needed one of these things until I saw one of these things. And I thought, I need one of those things. I get it. The lesson for government is that while you need to be able to, you really do need to be able to sort through the chaff of the marketing messages, you still need to be able to listen to what it is that marketers are saying 
And market research is one of the things that the Defense Department in the United States at least is really bad at, like systematically bad at market research, mostly because it doesn't try very much. And this is at least what, what I hear from senior people in acquisition is that it's not a priority. We don't teach people how to do it, not very often. And I mean, I've tried through executive education to help a little bit in the federal bureaucracy with that. But if, think about it, if there had been a better market research, this is a matter of basically technical intelligence. If there had been a market research activity back in 2004, 2005, scanning the world, somebody would have said, well, oh, those crazy South Africans, they have these things. They rarely lost people to landmines when they were riding in those, when they were riding in pickup trucks that lost them left and right. Maybe we should market research, do your market research. Yeah. No, it's a great point to take away for the government that how important market research is. So we're going to transition to our panel. But first we have Damon Walsh. At the time of, of your book and in your book, he was a marketing executive at Force Protection, which was the early provider of the pre-MRAP vehicle. Now he's the chairman and co-founder of the Mission Solutions Group. We also have Susan Alderson, who in the book you term the mother of the MRAP. That's not my term. That right. other people term Susan that, but I, I understand why. Yeah, you, you've made that term now. Everybody's going to use it. So <laughs> uh, at the time, she was the chief scientist at ONR and to the one MEF. And, that, and she was uh, the statistician who sparked the successful drive to adopt the MRAP uh, for the Marine Corps. She's now uh, out in California as the technical director of the Marine Corps Tactical Systems Support <laughs> Activity. That's a mouthful. And finally, we have Paul Mann, who's joining us from the Pentagon. And maybe one of, he, he's joining us by phone, and we're really glad to have you, Paul. But uh, the Pentagon will figure out how to join webinars virtually with the camera. But anyway, Paul, not, obviously not your problem, but he's the, he was the first MRAP program manager and so has a ton to do with saving lives in the Middle East and now is the chief engineer of U.S. Navy. So thank you all to the panelists for joining us today. But I'd just like to start off with Damon. Can you talk about your early experiences with force protection, how you started to get excited and produce this pre-MRAP vehicle, and who were some of the influences, and I'll just say South Africans that I read about in the book. Sure, uh, good morning. Good to see several of you again. I think I pointed out, Paul, when MRAP, just as an aside, when MRAP first started, other than my wife, Paul was the first and last person I talked to almost every day of the week for about 15, 16 months. I retired from the Army in 2005 and joined Force Protection. I had spent 0304 in Iraq, never saw any of the, the mine protected vehicles, never even heard of them. Got blown up a couple of times in, in SUVs and wish I had seen them and been able to ride. But I joined Force Protection and so the, I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest version of the history that I learned from the executives there. And the executive Jim keeps talking about is a guy named Mike Aldrich. Mike was uh, the VP of, of marketing and business development when I got there. And then Mike and I joined hand in hand and, and started to do uh, more program. I was more on the program side than marketing. When in, in, the, in the late nineties, a couple South Africans by the name of Garth Barrett, and Dr. Vernon Joint, who wound up being our chief technology officer, came to America. It was Garth, as I understand it, Garth's idea, came to America to plug into a foreign comparative test run by the Army 
for anti-mine protection and part of the, the ground standoff mine protection system program, these statements, which eventually became the route clearance teams. And then I joined and we had the Marine Corps. At that point, we had about 15, 16 buffaloes sold, mostly for the Army. I was told the first two buffaloes ever sold were to the Navy, but I could never find any history of that. And that started with when the South Africans came, they were part of a company called Critical Solutions International. They then broke off. The, they had the route clearance vehicles, the Husky, the, what we called the JERV, eventually called the JERV, came from the RG31, but there was a corporate split between Garth and the other guys in CSI, and he wound up forming TSG, Technical Solutions Group, which was then acquired by a PE guy named Frank Cavanaugh, and that's what started Force Protection. The, the Marine Corps came to, and I don't know, a guy's name, the folks we dealt with, which was Maddox, Lieutenant Colonel Mike McCucci, um, Joe Murgo was there in, in some form or fashion, Jim Batten. It was a very small crew that was appendix to Mark or Syscom working on these vehicles in conjunction with uh, a PM shop out of take on G statements. Somebody in the Marine Corps in late 2004 approached Force Protection about buying GERVs and modifying Cougars to make them into GERVs, joint engineering and reconnaissance and recovery vehicles. The, the acronym is escaping. I apologize to the acronym gods. And an acronym of E stands for EOD. Oh, that's right. Yep. Uh, there was, frankly, nobody at, at, at Force Protection that spoke government. There just, there wasn't. They were all automotive folks and the South African guys. So the Marine Corps came to the leadership at that point and said, hey, we want to buy, I want to say the number was 106 jurors between the Army and, and the Marine Corps combined. And... They had never done scale production. There was a lot of dispute. They signed up to a contract. They had absolutely no way of producing and then stumbled along till the summer of 2005, fall of 2005, when the PCO, Mr. Barry Dillon, who was the, the deputy at Marcor Syscom, and then Lieutenant Colonel Mike Kucci came down and said, okay, you tell us what you can do and then do it or you die. And that's what then led to we baseline what we could do and then turned around and started limping along doing. Eventually, we delivered all the vehicles. We got the production straightened out, and we started delivering. The challenge became that they were never fully engineered. There was never a stable design. My first effort there, I was the Buffalo program manager, and the early Buffaloes had been sold with solid, so the engine overheated. So the Army said, hey, can we buy new hoods to replace those? So the engineers used the Buffalo that was sitting there and it was like four inches off of the buffaloes that were in the field. So it wound up damaging all the engine. It was embarrassing. But then uh, it come 2006, the Brits showed up, the vehicles performed. The thing was the vehicles performed magnificently. They did a very good job of, of protecting. And then in 2006, the world just took off. Yeah, yeah. The ILAF program happened. The British Mastiff and, and Ridgeback program happened. And then in September, I called the new CG, General Grogan, because I'd known him when I commanded the tank plant, just to congratulate him, let him know where I was. He immediately said, hey, when can you come up and talk about mine protected vehicles? I said, General, the way this works is you say the date and I'll be there. And went up and talked with him. And that's the first time I met Paul. He was the brand new program manager. And then the world, just everything stepped on. All the logs were thrown on the fire at that point. And yeah, no, that's such an interesting recount of the early days of how 
this product was in the innovation was starting to be developed and a company that had no government contacts, no previous work with the government started to figure out who to talk to. And I'd like to uh, transition to Susan because about that same time, Susan was the chief scientist uh, for the first MEF. She was helping analyze what was happening in the battlefields and what were the innovations that were working, what wasn't working, and actually even deployed to the Middle East. Uh, Susan, can you talk about some of those experiences? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is a great conversation. And I have to say to earlier, this is learning for me. It's an interesting part of the process because some of the stuff that Damon has said, I'm learning. I feel like I'm taking notes. I see Jim's writing stuff down. It's kind of like, I didn't know that part of it. I think this truly is one of those things where you're, you all become part of the team and your job is to get the ball partway down the field, but you may not be the one going to score that goal and somebody else is going to do that. But I think from a S&T perspective, my government service has been mostly in science and technology areas. And what we really see is very often you get something started and then things take a while and take a while and take a while, and then they come to fruition. So it was nice for the MREPs to actually see something come through and, and get in the hands of the Marines before your tenure at the job ends. So when I was a science advisor, I actually was at McTissa first, and we built ourselves a place where industry could come in and test their products ahead of that whole long JSITS process that everything goes through. And my prime customer at the time was OneMeth because they were in the field, obviously fighting the war. And that's when their chief staff said, you come be our science advisor. So at that point, I became the person that all of industry's good ideas came to. So across my desk was a wide range of things. And of course, our biggest problem at the time was IEDs. So from your marketing perspective, I would suggest that what we tried to look at was what really is the question we're trying to answer? What are we trying to get after? And what we had done a lot of was to try and get after some of the signals and some of the digitals and some of that. So how do we look at garage door openers as the triggering device? Can I jam that signal? Uh, a lot of our work had been put into jamming devices. We tried to build those into all the vehicles that the Marines drive on. And there's a scalability question. Can you put that into every single vehicle so that it's available when you need it? That was a huge problem when you think about how many vehicles there were that we would have to backfit with these types of things. So it was a multi, the IED problem was a multifaceted problem. So what other places were there? We also looked at things that would be like, could we sniff out bombs, right? Could we sniff out explosives? You realize very soon that in an agricultural country, fertilizers smell like bombs, right? So we would very often have fertilizer in people's hands and it really wasn't that they were working with gunpowder and it was explosive, but it had a very similar sniffing type of tendency there. We tried to put up uh, barriers. We tried to put up roadblocks. We actually used under vehicle cameras so we could take a look and see if things were IEDs. We tried to track people to see if we could watch them dig holes. But then you realize that there's so much junk on the side of the roads through so much by rack that it was very difficult for us to even tell if the roads had been disturbed. So we'd really been working on lots of different aspects of the problem. And I would say that, as you've heard from Damon, these vehicles were already there. So realistically, what I was successful at was asking the right question. 
So I shifted the focus of the question to be, how can people survive? What vehicles do our people survive these hits? If I can't stop the IEDs from actually being laid, being exploded when we hit them, then the next part is who still lives? And that was really where I started collecting the data. There were lots of different vehicles and somebody in the chat asked about strikers had done which were really built with things from the sides, not from the bottom. And that was really the biggest difference in the MRAPs is that they were protected, yes, all around, but especially the way they took the hits from the road. And that's where all the mines were. As Jim alluded to earlier, this is not a new problem for any military. Those mines have been around a long time. And this area was rife with them. <laughs> Those Iraqis, they've been bombed by everybody. So there is unexploded ordnance all over the country. This was a very easy way for them to reuse that stuff, to build it and bury it, and we drove over it. So now we're basically asking the question, okay, what vehicles actually survive? So the Marine Corps engineers have been using those buffaloes, have been using those types of vehicles. So it really was, why aren't all our people using these? And one of the other things I think from a marking perspective is, somebody asked about what's different with MRAPs that makes them successful. They were absolutely the right answer at the time. So what you have to understand is we were losing people, lots of people, to IEDs. And that was really tough for all of us, for the country to be losing our fighting force to these IEDs, which is a very low threat. So it was also embarrassing. So it was really like, okay, we have to get past this. How do we keep our people alive? And how do we do that? Well, science, industry, technology, we've come up with a whole bunch of answers, but they were all for the peripheral questions for the other parts of the problem, not for the problem of keeping people alive. And MREPs did that. But I can tell you that months after they were delivered, probably three or four months after they delivered, then people started saying they're too heavy and they're too expensive and they're too hard to move around and they're too hard. So it was once we solved the problem, after about maybe six months and we weren't losing people IEDs so much anymore, then it was kind of like, oh yeah, well, that was the wrong solution. And then the whole people that were behind that, the whole JLTV thing, the Humvee Mafia, all those people started coming back. That's not a long-term solution and we can't do that. And we've spent far too much money. And so you will also see equal amounts of articles that are, well, the MRAP was wrong because it was too expensive, it's too hard, we've left them there, we can't use them. So I think you also have to consider it was the right thing at the right time. It absolutely was the only solution that we had at the time to make that happen. And that's really, I think, what industry responded to because we did collect a lot of data. And I'm so happy you found Captain Malakar, Jim, for your book because he truly was amazingly helpful. And the Marine Corps had so many people who were trying to look at the data and who were trying to do both the data analysis and the market research. How do we do this? Right. That's that's one thing that I want to I want to clarify and highlight because actually Dr. Young was saying uh, in the chat that well, it's not like the contractors were evangelizing this idea within the military. No, that's an important distinction. I should clarify that. It really wasn't what I mean it meant. Stephanie, you were asking what are the big lessons. One thing that I didn't mention, and this was and at one point you also asked me, was there a surprise about this? Not everybody involved in this process knew everybody else involved in the process. Damon knew Paul, and you knew Paul, but you didn't. had never met Damon, and Damon, until he read the book, hadn't actually heard your name. It 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 was to make rather surprising to me that 
This thing got done because different groups of people in different realms of activity, mostly first in industry is my argument in the book, then mostly in the military services. And then finally, people like uh, Gates and John Young, then mostly in the Defense Department with some enthusiastic get behind them the work in the Congress from, for example, a senator named Joe Biden at the time, okay, in sequence, picked up what other people had done, looked at it and said, oh, wow, it was a matter at each stage of creating some facts on the ground, to use another military metaphor. And Dr. Young was saying, well, one of the big, one of the big turning points was in May of 07, when Gates got to see a blast test in Aberdeen. You see something, I've got a picture of that. I think it's the same one I got a picture of. Very impressive. And you see these things, or at least I have a great, I got a great blast test picture of them all over the web. And you see these things and you think, oh, holy cow, that is a robust vehicle. To get to that point, you needed somebody actually to get it into a formal testing program. You needed to get orders. Actually, by May 2007, the military had already ordered over a thousand MRAPs. There was an order book like that. What these guys did at that level was to say, no, this is a national priority. This is a DX rating and everything else stops. This is my number one procurement priority. When there were folks saying, but I got stealth fighters I need to buy to chase the insurgents. And I, no, no, you don't actually. This is what you're going to do. And, but it had to go through several other steps. Somebody else asked, what was different about this? I mean, uh, uh, Joe, Joe Pignano in the chat, what was so different about this? What's so different about this? No offense to Paul Mann, because Paul was, did yeoman work here, of course, and highlighted the career. But somebody joked to me once that this thing worked because you made the SecDef the program manager. Now, that's not really what happened, but you got program manager kind of attention from a guy like Robert and from people like John. Yeah, great segue to Paul Mann, who's joining us via telephone. So you don't see him on your screen, but he's definitely with us and listening. Paul, can you talk about that fateful evening when you took an exit that you weren't planning and got told about an opportunity to be a program manager of a small vehicle program, at least that's what you thought. And then the challenges that you face with requirements, because we've talked about that with what were the requirements up front? What was the problem we were trying to solve? What were the criticisms of the different aspects of the pre-MRAP and the, to the MRAP program? Paul, over to you. So, yeah, it's great to be on the panel and listen and continue to learn. Probably around the August, September 2006 timeframe, is when I, probably after Labor Day actually is what I remember, when I, I met Mr. Barry Dillon down at Syscom. And, and to Damon's previous point, there was at least some project work and some ideas about the potential of a mine resistant vehicle. So I fell in on some foundational work that was generated by a lot of smart people, but the doubts were can you manufacture these and can you deliver them to meet a survivability requirement that keeps changing? I, I, I will tell you I'm a pretty unconventional choice in that I was a mathematician doing air and missile defense most of my life and somewhat interoperability. And the MRAP five-person team that I was invited to join was, it was like I had never done anything associated with what this mission was, possibly with the exception of some system engineering tests and some leadership. 
before I even showed up. So I took the job. I think I got selected in September. I started on October 30th. And we, this was five days before the election and the loss of our Secretary of Defense. So when I, we started, it was getting clear that the requirement and the tolerance for how many lives we were losing every month was dramatically changing. And I, again, I don't have the days, but early in November, probably my first week, maybe my second week, we were told to put uh, a solicitation out on the street, both sole source and a competitive literally in my very first week on the job. And I went from, hey, I'm going to go down and work on this with five people to, hey, there's Army people here, there's Air Force people. And it's kind of a cobble of memories on what happened between November, December, and January in that three months because it had already started seven days a week. And we literally put the solicitation out and executed source selection and late January awarded uh, nine IDIQ contracts that kind of paved the way for the next seven years. So ma'am, to your question, I had no idea on planet Earth what the hell I was getting into. I literally thought I was getting a a cool project to, to learn to join the Marine Corps. I had really no idea it was going to be a joint special $20 billion a year program when I started. Yeah, it was a, a trip. And I, I guess I'll add one more piece. We had all of the industry, we immediately knew between the smart people in the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, uh, Air Force and Special Forces who all wanted some number of the vehicles. We were literally uh, working 24 hours a day with contractor support and shift work to compress the timelines to get all the acquisition documentation put into place so that we could actually do the procurement. Dizzying at best, the first year was brutal. Everybody said we would fail. Everybody tried to prove that we would. Lots of high level stuff and we were rescued when SecDef and the undersecretary then, it was Mr. Or the Honorable Mr. Young, basically made MRAP the number one acquisition priority. That was not true and when I started in October and probably not until I think it was April, May or June of 2007. So we had tons of critics, tons of people pummeling us. And my greatest achievement was my complete ignorance. I just didn't know what was impossible on this. And we had one mantra. If it met the survivability requirement, if they asked how many were you going to buy, as many as the company could produce. And so everything was boiled down to one simple idea. Does it meet the survivability requirements? And what is the maximum number you can produce? Thanks, Paul. We sure appreciate it. So Jim, one of the things that I thought was very interesting when we started talking about setting up this panel, and I read your book, and all the people I read about existed in the book, and as Susan commented, not everybody knew everybody, which was a surprise as I started meeting the, the panel members here. One of the questions that was asked was, is there a way for future efforts to make sure that community is more connected and more involved with each other? Do you have any thoughts? So was this, were you thinking about Jerry Valdez, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, question about the map of influencers? 
Yes, correct. Okay, yeah. now, I don't actually know that particular management technique, that one strictly, but I think I know what it is just from just from the title. I got two, I probably got two responses about it. So the technical one I'd have is there was a day way back, I'm trying to forget, it's 2009 or 2010, so over 10 years ago, I got asked to help out with some marketing activities that a European defense contractor was undertaking to do some uh, marketing work in, in, in another European country. So a European co company from one country was trying to sell some armored vehicles in another European country, and they're in the capital city, and they invited me into their war room, so to speak, for the sales effort. What really impressed me was that I, I think that somebody here had probably come from, either had come from an intelligence service or had been watching too many movies, because all over the wall, no, it was actually a really good thing. There were there was this social network map with pictures pinned up and descriptions of people and what their influence was over a process, both formally and, and as far as they could tell, informally. So they could try to figure out what the particular points of influence were for getting their products sold to that particular defense force, that particular army. They were unsuccessful for what it matters, but I thought about that. Okay, that's really cool. If somebody asked me to do that sometime or pitch that to somebody as a consultant, that'd be great. It's also, I would love to do that kind of work as a researcher. The trouble is I had to write an entire dissertation to get into the kind of detail that you need to get into to understand who Damon Walsh was, who Susan Alderson was. It's a little more obvious to figure out who Paul Mann was and certainly John Young, but to, to figure out who the people were at like all these crazy South African names I had to look up. You, you gotta, you, you're having lunch with people in rural South Carolina, having a shrimp oil, you're talking about things that we did back in the 70s, blowing up vehicles. So it's hard to make this sort of a replicable process, but there are places in the US military and in other military forces where there are opportunities for folks to come together to meet and have convenient meetings of minds. So one institution that I noticed was probably influential here was the Marine Corps Command and Staff College who caused an Aquatico because the, the word, the very phrase came out of a master's thesis. A number of the people who were involved, they weren't all there at the same time, but they were at least reading each other's work, perhaps hearing about, oh yeah, you should talk to this major who none of them came out of that program. And at least two of them had done work on an MRAP concept before meeting Susan in Iraq to help her do the staff work to get this thing sold up the chain to a couple different Marine Corps generals before it ultimately gets to the Commandant. The military has opportunities for people to go to, I'm a former war college professor. Some of the war colleges and staff colleges are better at this than others. It, it's That is an important function. I'm not saying everybody should go through that program and what point in your career is a different question, but the fact that you can take people out of the line for months or even a year at a time to do that thinking about stuff that's off in the future, very potentially very important. That's, yeah, a idea about collaboration, the importance of academic institution and the gathering of people who have spent time at a tactical level and, you know, are now transitioning to a, to a more senior strategic level are all super important points. I'd like to go to, there's been several questions in the chat. They've talked about the supply chain issues and the ramp up issues. And so, Damon, can, you were, you were living this day in, day in out what were the challenges that you were facing how did you approach them and how did the government help you approach them so the dx rating sorry yeah. the uh, defense priority and allocation system 
is is a statutory authority that the government can, in time of crisis, apply a rating, which means when I walk into industry, if I have an order from the government with a rated order, in this case, DX, which is the, the highest rating, they are required to divert everything possible to deliver everything to satisfy our order before they did anything else. I think the, the two, and I put the anecdote on there about Timken roller bearing, that was a hilarious conversation because that was our, that was becoming a pacing item for us in, in the engine components. And I called this VP of their supply chain and said, Hey, you're going to get asked eight times because eight different companies are going to come to you and ask, which was one of the challenges. The steel industry especially was getting eight or nine different requests for, Hey, I need 20,000 vehicles worth of steel. The steel industry wasn't aware that, that they're only that, that all not all nine of us were going to produce 20,000 vehicles. So they were seeing this enormous demand, but it really wasn't. And eventually, I'm sure Secretary Young or Paul can weigh in on, we know, we knew that there was actions happening at the DOD level to try and provide information to the big suppliers, tires, transmissions, engines, steel, to give them a, a one over the world look of that. But the Timken guy, I called him and said, hey, this is, how quickly can you give us, I think at the time, 5,000 vehicles worth of Timken roller bearings. Just this little tapered roller bearing that goes in the engine, uh, but it doesn't work without. He said, I, I, that's, he was primarily an automotive industry supplier, which is enormous. He said, well, most of our, our consumption is with automotive industry. I'm not sure we can divert it. We went back and forth a little bit. And I said, listen, I talked to a guy named Paul Mann at DOD every day. He's telling me that there's a likelihood this is going to get a DX rating, which means all of your freaking production is going to go to us. And he said, well, hold on a minute. And then we started working out the supply chain. So it, what they didn't want was us to impose that because then they couldn't deliver to their automotive suppliers, which as everybody knows, we're getting to experience that now for others. But that's a, a big hit to industry. So there was a little, I think, uncoordinated at first, but once DOD weighed in, then it got clearer and all of supply chain. We never had any trouble getting the supplies we needed, mostly because we were young and fairly naive. So we went out and said, oh, this is a big program. Let's order $100 million worth of steel, which we did. And our, our big partners, just, they were astounded that we would do that. It was like, well, we, what the heck? We'll just go out of business. <laughs> Paul, can I throw this conversation over to you? What were the challenges that you faced in ramping up this five-person office to start now having to deal with thousands of orders and the supply chain and the requirements and changing requirements was also mentioned and, and help from OSD and support from OSD. Paul, over to you. Yeah, seven days a week for uh, most of the first couple years. Every Friday, we were in a meeting with the ASNRDA. First, it was Dr. Edder, then it became Mr. Stackley. But w we had a battle rhythm of senior leader at the three and four star level every single uh, week demanding that any obstacles that we highlighted were assigned and allocated. So. Mr. Al Schaefer, who was an executive working for Secretary Young, had the secretariat role. And it just felt like we were in a 24-7 battle operations plan. 
and I, I think it's been suggested and, and stated, and I think it is true. Once we all knew what we were trying to do and got a little clarity on the organization, the services initially, there was an Army program, there was a Marine program. I don't know if there was ever a CB or Navy program, but a key move that we made early in the process was to make it a joint program so that we all came together instead of arguing and coordinating and collaborating with each other, we became uh, sort of a one integrated team. It took us a while to get credibility and there were some rough battles that were held at the very high levels. And like I said, we would go into OSD and uh, these weekly sessions and if there were anybody standing in the way of progress they were they got to address it uh, directly at a very high level i do want to say on the supply chain in addition to the dx rating i i think osd unleashed their entire talent there was a, a whole group of folks that dealt with manufacturing industrial policy and whether it was reaching out to dcmas reaching out internationally harvesting the world supply of tires where's the right steel while we certainly get credit for some program management functions and delivery capability it felt like the entire department of defense was trying to help us deliver these vehicles. And yeah, and the ramp up, it sort of, I don't know, it, it wasn't like an overnight sensation. I think every month we probably grew by three or four teams and, and Mr. Kevin Fahey, who was a PEO in the Army in Detroit, the largest part of our team was the Army acquisition team under Kevin Peterson. And, and he was assigned as my military deputy. So ma'am, last point is, we sort of identified everybody that's on the playing field that can help and we brought them under one sort of organizational construct with General Michael Brogan being the joint PEO. And I know that I I'm probably have memories from some of the getting slammed on and blindsided with big complaints on big issues, but after about uh, six to eight months, it became clear that the first couple hundred vehicles we were delivering from force protection, when somebody got blown up in theater, most of the time they survived. And it just became the more we delivered, the happier the operational forces were. By the time we were done, let's say in Afghanistan in 2010, we were at about 3,000 program office personnel, over 1,000 of them. We had to execute the depot and the repair, battle damage and repair, servicing. There was no organic capability in any of the services to do that work. So our program office infiltrated the theater and, and we set up shop there. And again, it was a whole of nation, Defense Logistics Agency, DCMA. There's not an activity anywhere that wasn't on the team making this all happen. It, it was truly an amazing imperative. Thanks, Paul. I, I sure appreciate that recount. You gave a nice shout out to Kevin Fahey, and I'd just like to build on that. I'm not sure a lot of people have connected that Kevin Fahey was the PO uh, for the Army MRAP program. But then, most recently, he was the Assistant Secretary for Acquisition during the government's response to COVID. And it was his team under his leadership that really accelerated all of the activities with regards to the contract support for developing the vaccine, 
for energizing the industrial base. So it's it would be really interesting. And now I'm going to highlight my good friend, Fred Geller at uh, U.S. Army uh, War College at Carlisle. Hopefully you have somebody teed up to write the same dissertation that Jim Hasek has wrote about MRAP for COVID and comparing the two responses, because it would be really interesting to see if, if some of these lessons from the MRAP program were applied or if we faced some of the same battles. And I'd like to use that as a transition to Susan. So your role was bringing the science, technology, the an analysis of defining what the problem was to help find that right solution in a barrel of hundreds of solutions that were being offered. There was a question that was asked about some of the innovation organizations in the Department of Defense and how they can wade through all of these innovations from industry coming in and pick the right ones and accelerate them for adoption and operations and deployment in the military. Susan, do you? Thank you, Stephanie. And I think that is a million dollar question, right? We can all talk about the valley of death. There's so many good ideas that never make it to where they wanna be. Uh, there are things that just get in the way and our procurement process is one of them. I think DOD has been made very aware of that. We are certainly trying to be more receptive to ideas. And Jim, I think point you made earlier was that market research thing. And this is something that industry actually can help us with. I think that you as the vendor, if you will, know your market the best and your competitors the best. So honestly, if you were to come to me and say, here's the top five things in my category, but here's what I do that they don't do, or here's what you should use to distinguish these or whatever, because what I've seen over the years is that where there used to be a finite set of money to buy five things, now each of those five things actually represents a category of thing. I used to have goggles. Now I have night vision goggles. Now I have sand goggles. Now I have sun goggles. Now I have chemical goggles. Now I have, so all of those have a place, but Honestly, in a DOD budget, I still have the same amount of money to buy those. So when we're talking about hair splitting, if you will, or the technology area for solving a problem, I know that we certainly from an S&T community and Vice Admiral Selby at, at ONR would tell you, industry, you have to help us. So what have you built that's different for us to purchase that solves more of our problem, right? That gets after can you do more than one thing? Can you solve this? Can you attach to something that I already own? Because it's congressionally budgeted line items for most programs. So if I can attach to an existing program, that's an easier way for me to advance a new technology or a new way to solve things. It's very difficult for the government to do all things to all people. When I was the one math science advisor, everything, every technology came across my desk whether it was water purification, whether it was ammo carrying, whether it was digital connectivity, and then the things doing with IEDs. People would say, you have to pick mine because it saves lives. And, and I would tell you everything on my desk could have saved lives, but we had to really search through those. So it really is if 
people can help who you're going into. We understand how the other vendors are going to market you. I have no problem with someone telling me that. But company A comes in and they say, we're selling this. Now we know that you have companies B, C, and D and they're selling that, but here's what, what we do. Because the other side, and we've actually seen a great response from industry on this, people are willing to team with each other. And we're seeing teams and we're seeing things come together. And I, I think that Damon alluded to that when he's working with other people and other companies and they're partnering and they're making that happen. We have seen that the fastest things get done when we partner. And when people say, hey, I'll bring in the network and you can bring in the data processing and you can bring in the, the edge computing pieces to that. Now you're actually marketing the whole system to the government. And sometimes that's even a better way to go so that I don't have to spend all the time figuring out what all those in between elements are but you have come in and said, here's your sort of end-to-end -end solution piece. Damon, what's the secret sauce from a small company, not potentially solving an, a problem like an MRAP, but breaking into the government procurement system with an innovative product like you had? If I had that answer, I'd do a different <laughs> job. They, I think the thing is that the balance for industry is, and it was very telling for me, I hit the lottery in a lot of ways going to force protection. I spoke government acquisition. And when I landed in force protection, the day I was there, they negotiated a unsettlement for a definitized, to definitize contract for a purchase of a few buffaloes. And they did it. The CFO agreed. He got off the phone and I said, well, how much did that buffalo cost? I knew what the government was agreeing to. He said, we're not really sure. I said, okay, that's a problem. But it was a great learning experience because of those events. I got to watch a little company go through everything listing and along the way the balance from both for me from both a government and a industry perspective is there has to be a balance between competition and exposure the the at one point to pair it off of your i mean we were teamed with general dynamics was building force protection vehicles armor holdings was building force protection vehicles until BAE bought them. And then we just scrambled that. But General Dynamics, the Marine Corps depot, depot in Albany was building them. We had Textron geared up to build them. But then it turned into a competition and there's a lot of benefit, I'm sure Paul would agree, that comes from competition because you get some innovation you wouldn't normally have gotten. But the end result was, well, we all then closed our roads and stopped talking to each other. So I, I don't, I'll tell you something, I wish I had the answer for how do you solve that? I had an opportunity to talk with Ellen Lord a couple of times before when she was in the Pentagon about that. And I, that's a part of the challenge is the big guys own the defense industry. And that's, I don't know how you change that model. Innovation comes from, in my opinion, from small business. My friends at General Dynamics and BAE will call me names. How do you balance that? The 330,000 people that, that are companies that are out there, overwhelming majority of those are small. Most of the innovation comes from there. And most of them, 330,000 have case codes, don't survive becoming big. They either get bought or they die. So I don't, I really wish I could solve that. I was walking back and forth looking for the first time I wrote about force protection in the end. It was in a book in 2008. I just don't have to hold up and say, it's also available. I put it in the chat, University of Chicago Press, Arms and Innovation. It was about corporate alliances between small defense contractors and big defense contractors. Mm -hmm. Because I had noticed... And this was one of the cases that I had noticed when I was doing research before I started a PhD, which is a question about my ability to think strategically, right? That there were all these brilliant ideas coming out of little companies, but a lot of the access to 
the sales channels, basically, within the defense establishment, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, come from established contractors. So my argument in the book wasn't that you should be angry about this and try to do something about it. Rather, if that's the way the system works, there's some good reason that you need to be careful about protecting your intellectual property, but not too much, because you have to be able to share it with a channel partner or make things happen and be able to protect your relationship with the customer, but not too much, because again, you need to work with a big partner to make things happen. That's one of the things somebody was trying, I think actually, no, yes, Damon, you were trying to put me up to writing in the book. And I'd love, yes, I'd love to actually look at the force protection story from another angle. But one of the things I want to get back to in 2022, as part of my the later half of the year, as part of my research agenda, is to get back to that question of corporate alliances and defense contractors and figure out whether or not they're working for the small guys or not. I yeah. wish I had the answer. At one point, we formed a, a joint venture with, with General Dynamics, mm -hmm. which was akin to a pony, a little pony express rider latching onto an elephant and then trying to steer the elephant. They were so good at doing things that we weren't, and we were so good at doing things they weren't and we just couldn't we couldn't get there and it became it became too much of a financial challenge and gd eventually wound up buying force protection and from my perspective force protection disappeared it's gone the spirit of the company is gone again gd would disagree with me but that's, that's my view from my foxhole thank you i'd like to ask paul one last question to you i'd like to ask uh, what are the lessons learned that you're trying to instill across the u.s navy from your experiences as a program manager for the MRAP program. Yeah, I'm obviously uh, very humbled by any kind feedback. I love being a civil servant. I, I will tell you today, I'll be with the Vice Chief of Naval Operations and ASNRDA again, and I'm part of another task force, another major initiative to accelerate dramatically the implementation of intelligent autonomous systems and unmanned capabilities under sea, surface, air, and other geographic domains. And I am literally every week unleashing my experience about MRAP 15 years ago on the teams that are plowing ahead on this campaign that we're on right now. So I'm literally part of another task force. This time I'm sitting in a different place. So I'm not the program manager in the field, more or less one of the leaders up in the trenches helping build synergy across the key components from congressional appropriations, which is always critical, all the way through department and service policies. The last point I'll tell you is that, and the lesson that we learned is when the United States Department of Defense or any of the services decides that they really got to do something because the stakes are so high, people start to get in line. And we're starting to see that now with, quite frankly, hopefully before we start seeing any ships in harm's way, seriously, let's get ahead of it. So, ma'am, bringing people together, collaboration skill, inviting people to listen and think differently, bring industry in. I know Mr. Walsh talks about force protection. We had nine other companies that we were also calling every day as well. And my last lesson learned is when the United States unleashes the talent of the people on our teams, there's nothing that we cannot do. And that's what I believe. And that's why I'm sitting in ASNRDA trying to, I'll call it an encore performance this time with unmanned systems across the nation. Thank you. Thanks, Paul.
We will close with Jim Hassett, but before we do that, as mother of the MRAP, because I always think it's best to make sure the mother gets the last word, what's the advice you give to the, to the scientists across the Department of Defense? Oh, gosh. Thanks. And, and the mother came too from that. My boys were teenagers at the time and, and it was another perspective to talk to generals about to say, hey, if these are my boys, when you send them forward, I want them to be. Um, now I'm old enough that most of the Marines could be my children. So it's an interesting position. I think that across the DOD, this country is amazing in how smart we are, in how passionate we are, and in how we truly care about each other and certainly our military. Our hashtag MACTISA is make Marines more capable. And I think that there are so many companies who want to help. People want to help. We need to be better at telling them how to help. And that is unfortunately means that there's a prioritization of efforts. There's a prioritization of spending. So it really does get across to the companies that want to help. We need to tell them how they can do that. And we really need to allow for good ideas to float up. We, I totally agree with Damon that the small companies who come up with great ideas, that's usually why they spin off from big companies is they want to pursue a specific idea and they want to go in a specific direction. And we really need to figure out how to open the doors for them to come and talk to us and to free up money because we need to have same year money unprogrammed from where it's supposed to go to free it up to really take advantage of a good idea in the time that it's being created. To have to wait four or five years to get it pumped is a difficult decision. So somehow there has to be money available to people to really advance that spot on good idea when it comes up somewhere. And I wish I had a solution for him as we're all saying, if we knew how to get across that valley, we'd all be uh, in a lot of different jobs. But I think that we have to encourage those people who have hearts to do this work for the government to uh, make it go because it really is more about the mission than the job. I think people really do want to help more than want to make money off of it. We really have to figure out how to inform people to bring us their best ideas and then get that to the right program people and figure out how to get that to our warfighters in a time applicable way. Thanks, Susan. I just put the link in the chat of where you can buy Dr. Jim Hasek's book. So you want to click on that link. If you don't make that decision right now and you decide to make it later, you can uh, find it on our Center for Government uh, Contracting website. So as we close out, Jim, we've heard a lot of people talk about collaboration, talk about communication, talk about the will of the American people. You've talked about some lessons learned for industry, for government. Any final comments on those points, things that we missed? What's the one thing we should take away? This has been a fabulous hour and a half, and I'm really happy this is going to get posted. Yeah, buy my book, but you don't. It's okay. The, if there's one thing I want to tell people about this, I want to echo what Paul said, Susan said about there, there are some really smart people in this country. Smart, capable, enthusiastic people are keep trying to come into this country, okay? This is our, our ability to attract, in particular, immigrants to do awesome kinds of work in different fields is a very important part of what makes this country quite so capable. I will highlight that now, when we were dealing with insurgents in Iraq and Afghanistan, 
we outnumbered them here to there, although they often have, sometimes they have more people on the ground and sometimes not, are, are probably our emerging number one rival, potentially most terribly in the world, not the country you know, which we outnumber. There are about four times as many of them as there are of us. And so at a certain point, we're going to run out of money and we're probably going to run out of bodies that we can keep throwing at problems. This leads to Lord Rutherford's observation that at that point, we have to start thinking. We're gonna have to be smart about how we do this. And I'm happy to hear about things like, you got a guy like Paul Mann, his next gig is, let's go figure out how to autonomize you know, a large part of our, our, our naval force. We are going to have to think more smartly about this. Part of that is science and technology, but also part of it is management and marketing. Because if we don't get the ideas into the hands and into the minds of the people who need to have them, they're gonna sit on the shelf, whether it's in South Africa or somewhere else, and they're not gonna be, they're not gonna be available for that next armed conflict, we're going to be able to throw at that next idea. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to, I, I wanted with this book to be able to show people a path towards getting to the answer to the next idea, whatever that might be. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Uh, and with that, we will close out this panel talking about marketing lessons uh, for the how to market to the military. Um, sorry. Can you hold up your book again? Yeah, sorry. The book is actually called Securing the MRAP. And yeah, you can get it through Texas A&M University Press. My dissertation was actually called MRAP Marketing Military Innovation. And, and this is a major portion of what my, my research interests here at George Mason University and the Center for Government Contracting are marketing, about military innovation, about marketing to the armed forces. It's a pretty understudied topic amongst academics, to say the least. Yeah, excellent. But I'd also like to thank our panelists, Damon Waltz, Susan Alderson and Paul Mann, and also for all the participants, because we just had an amazing conversation back and forth in the chat, a lot of information shared, a lot of great questions asked. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.